Welcome to Films in the Wilderness, a six-week limited podcast series during Lent 2021, brought to you by the Diocese of Southern Ohio. I'm Carl Stevens. I'm Jed Deering. And we are joined today by my friend Elizabeth Thompson, who is a professor of American literature at Ohio University. And Elizabeth, you and I uh, first met a few years ago, maybe eight or nine years ago, when I um, took a group of youth down to what to Good Earth Farm, which was an intentional community at that time outside of Athens. And you were there working in the garden. I remember very distinctly the first time we met. And um, a little while after that, I asked you to teach in the uh, school for the diaconate, and you taught about Cabeza de Vaca, who has been one of my lifelong interests. Um, Jed, do you know who Cabeza de Vaca is? No, I do not. Elizabeth, do you want to fill him in for... <laughs> Yeah, sure. I mean, briefly, he's a, he's a Spanish explorer, uh, the first to make contact. And uh, he, uh, uh, he, he entered through Florida. He, he um, sailed up from Cuba. And then he and his crew um, got uh, stranded, ran into a number of obstacles, mutiny, uh, uh, attacks by natives, and uh, starvation, illness, you name it. And they um, made their way, uh, they, they kind of hobbled together a makeshift boat and made it over to uh, the uh, uh, Galveston, uh, crashed on the Galveston shore where they were met by more natives. And uh, he and a couple of other guys were taken captive and he spent another oh, seven, eight, nine years in captivity um, and uh, adapting remarkably well. <laughs> I mean, this is one of the, I mean, he, miraculous things about his life. Um, so uh, eventually he um, he he starts to get some followers. Uh, people start to think that he's a healer and a, a spiritual, uh, and these are the natives, um, and uh, uh, they start to follow him. And um, they they believe he, in fact, brought someone back to life. And so he he's, he's quite a fascinating figure. And of course, he became quite close to the natives. And so in many ways, he's considered um, sort of a first, an early activist, right? Oh. But of course, the Spaniards do not follow his uh, his example in any way. Yes. <laughs> he and his uh, entire group of native friends crossed from Galveston Island and basically walked across the continental United States until they ran into all their Spanish people coming up from Mexico. It's, yeah, a, it's an amazing story. And, <laughs> and yeah, and I've loved it for a long time. And then the other th great gift you gave me, Elizabeth, in my life is you taught me about free writing, which is something I use mm. in sermon preparation pretty much every week. Um, I'm so glad that you found that helpful. Oh, incredibly. That's great. Yeah. So, and so we're just so glad to have you here um, to talk about this wonderful and amazing movie. If you have not had a chance yet to watch Happy as Lazaro, I will say that there is a movement about midway through this film uh, that I think as the viewer, really the surprise of it takes you on a journey and puts you into an a place of exploring and discovery and asking questions that uh, is an essential part of experiencing this film. So I encourage you, if you haven't yet watched Happy as Lazaro, to pause this podcast, go take some time to watch it and come back with us. Uh, the story that we pick up in Happy as Lazaro is of a group of sharecroppers who are working in Italy in what looks like a medieval setting, but we get all of these hints that it's a more modern time. We're a little bit out of time 
in this moment, but we're thinking maybe we're in the 80s or early 90s. Um, something like that. there's a cell phone that pops up at one point that kind of tells us we might be getting on towards the late 90s. Um, within this film, we come across this group of sharecroppers, uh, families that are intertwined, many of them living together in cramped conditions, uh, working to pay off a debt that it seems like they will never be released from. Um, and central to the story is Lazaro. And Lazaro is kind of a, a guileless, uh, meek, gentle-hearted servant who goes through the world with big eyes uh, and is readily available and strong and willing to help out with anything and anyone on the farm. <laughs> um, as, uh, as the story unfolds, we, we start to understand how the people are being exploited uh, by the landowners there and those that work with them for them. Um, and along the way, we end up meeting Tancredi, who's the son of the landowner, the son of the Marquise. And uh, Lazaro strikes up a friendship when Tancredi attempts to uh, extort money from his mother by faking his own kidnapping and going and hiding up in the mountains in a cave where Lazaro sleeps and tends to the sheep. Um, along the way in this movie, uh, we see the sharecroppers working the land, uh, caring for and protecting the place, the sheep from a wolf that is out there, uh, who is referenced often and for whom there is much fear. Um, and as this is occurring, uh, there is a daughter, a young girl of uh, one of the workers for the family who gets connected to Tancredi and is concerned about his kidnapping and why the mother isn't doing anything. The mother is wise to what her son is trying to do and doesn't care. <laughs> but this young girl is concerned about why this missing boy, why they aren't searching for him. She calls the police. The police come into this state named Invialada, and they discover there the sharecroppers being held years, we discover, after sharecropping has been outlawed in Italy. Um, and these people who had been having essentially modernity kept from them <laughs> um, are freed from their condition there on this estate, uh, led over this river, which has been clearly set up as kind of this um, the symbol uh, that was meant to cause them fear. Uh, they are led across it and into another world. Uh, along the way though, Lazaro had been out in the mountains and when looking up and seeing one of the helicopters coming in from the police slips and falls off the cliff, falling off the cliff, Lazaro dies. Well, we come back after the family and everyone has been let off the farm, we come back in and we find a wolf nuzzling Lazaro and he comes back to life. And that's where our story we find accelerates into another time when Lazaro returns to the farm, it is being ransacked. Uh, the, the home of the Marquis is being ransacked and it has been overgrown, clearly abandoned for some time. He ends up making his way into a city and we find that we are in much more of a modern day setting, very contemporary. And there he discovers uh, immigrant workers who are seeking to provide the lowest bid for almost nothing to be able to find work. He discovers along the way uh, by happenstance, again, 
the family who had been the people who had been ransacking this farm and ends up discovering that they are connected to the family of sharecroppers who had once lived and been on this farm. Upon seeing him, a young girl who had been his age drops to her knees and begins to worship him in adoration, assuming him a saint, an angel. Others are calling him a devil. <laughs> but clearly something is out of the ordinary, that Lazaro has not aged a bit in the 20, 25 years. I don't know how many years you would think. We then follow the story of this family through a modern day Italy and the way that there is a kind of a neo-slavery, a neo-sharecropping lifestyle that um, this family and others are subject to, even as they've been freed from what have been seen as more a medieval type of slavery. Uh, and we track with their story as they again encounter Tancredi, the son of the Marquis, who's now grown up and been left in essence destitute by the scandal uh, from his family. And as I've been giving this summary, I realized this is a lot. It is. There's a lot more that goes on in what's really a very gentle, observant film. And I don't know how we cut that. Well, <laughs> that went much longer than I thought. I thought, I've seen this movie two times. I could freestyle this. <laughs> well, what's so amazing about the summary you just gave, Chad, is I, on the surface, this is a movie without very much plot. Like, not that much actually happens, or at least I thought that when watching it. But listening to you just now, it was like, wait a minute, there's a lot going on in this movie. I thought, I thought I can do this in three to four minutes, and <laughs> there I am six, seven minutes later, like, wait a minute. Actually, when you want to really attempt to explain or summarize this movie, I should have maybe went into themes and summarized by theme instead of by plot. I don't, did he miss anything, Elizabeth, or any themes that are laying out that, that we really want to come into? I don't think so. I mean, you know, he mentioned exploitation. I, I think exploitation is really an important, uh, an important concept. I, I think brotherhood and, and family um, are important concepts here. Um, of course, the ills of modernity and what modernity is, is doing to these bonds, uh, you know, um, the, the holy fool figure, I mean, I think that, that we can kind of think of Lazaro as that holy fool figure, which has come up in the series before. And, um, I, you know, I hope we at some point talk about the significance of the moon. The yeah. moon? Well, wow, I totally missed that. The wait. significance of the moon. <laughs> oh. This is going to be okay. fantastic. I, I, I feel like this movie has so much going on in it that yeah. probably each one of us saw completely different things, <laughs> uh, which is going to make for a really interesting conversation. But I'm really glad you mentioned The Holy Fool, Elizabeth, because for me, walking away from this movie, my main question was, who is Lazaro, really? And can I even make sense of him as a character? And therefore, I've spent this week reading articles about Holy Fools, which I will reference later on because it has been much on my mind <laughs> since uh, since watching the film. Um, the only other thing I think uh, that you left out, Jed, that I would like to reference is that um, Tancredi comes back in in the movie in a big way and... Um, Part of my question about who Lazaro is is why he is so dedicated and committed to this person who is obviously just a user and an abuser in life. And so there is something about um, 
throughout throughout the film there there is an exploration of themes of subservience but also of attempts at commonality and love which to me is a big part of the heartbreak of the movie is that those attempts don't get met with much really yeah so. yeah and i think for me like that um that attempt really it feels like it ties in with um antonia's story that she tells as the family is leaving the farm of the saint of saint francis going out to the wolf and gubbio and uh showing the people that it was in fact it was just a very hungry wolf <laughs> well and that the wolf even... could be that the wolf could be tamed and that this is lazaro as an attempt to go out to this hungry dying wolf this old institution this old way in Tancredi and um, but ultimately seems rebuffed that was my read originally and then the more I think about it though I wonder is it is Lazaro though the wolf and transformed into a wolf at the end well and uh, I'm not sure that story is the wolf of Gubbio I think it's a yeah. different folktale but it definitely has a lot to do with the wolf of Gubbio. Yeah. So I want to I want to spend some time talking about the woman <laughs> Gubbio too, and wolves yeah. in general. Okay, so we got holy fools, moons, wolves, uh, uh, sharecropping. Mm -hmm. We've we've got a lot to do. Let's let's get to the gospel, and then we can leap into the rest of it. Absolutely. Uh, the gospel for today from the Liturgy of Palms is from the Gospel of John, chapter twelve, verses twelve through sixteen. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Jed, since you were the person who picked this movie, as you picked all the movies in this series, what what connects this movie to the gospel for you? Um, well, one, just on a very superficial level, the image that honestly sparked this in my head when reading through the elections was the talking about taking the branches of palm trees down. And just immediately, I thought of the scenes of Lazaro inside the tobacco fields uh -huh. and these large leaves and the scenes that we get of him walking through and peering through them and thinking about those tobacco leaves as a type of like giant palm. <laughs> Um, so that initially just connected me on a visual level and what I thought was really quite a beautiful setting as uh, much of, in a sense, as horrific as it was as a setting. It was also a gorgeous setting. Um, as, but then on a deeper level for me, what ended up having me go, okay, no, I think there's actually something to be put into conversation here, uh, is just what it means that Jesus enters in for a group of oppressed people and enters in on the donkey enters in on this in this kind of meek way <laughs> enters in certainly to a crowd but again not coming in on the steed not coming in with an army 
becoming in and entering in for this salvific movement uh, in a way that was unseen or unexpected. Um, and there's so much going on here with our character of Lazaro. Uh, you know, there are moments where you wonder, okay, is this a character that can come and can bring salvation through his actions, through his kindness? Uh, there's a saintly type character who, like Lazarus, is raised from the dead. There's, there's something to him as he comes into this new world, will he bring transformation? But ultimately with Lazaro, we see what are the limits of unconditional kindness. <laughs> we see what the limits are, I think, in some ways of guilelessness, of um, not being able to see and perhaps address the bigger conditions that are around. And I think it raises, the movie raises some really great questions about, um, again, the, the type of subservience that he offers, um, even as he seeks to transcend some of the relationships through that kindness. Uh, so it raised for me some questions around that, around that. And um, yeah, it just uh, it gave an excuse, frankly, to watch this film, which upon a second watch now here and preparing for this, made me realize maybe it's the movie I've seen lately that I most wish I would have made <laughs> because it is so drenched in beauty uh, and it is such an incredible fable. And uh, at the same time, it is, grounded in realism uh i there there's so much that's happening that as an enneagram seven i love it because i feel like we can go so <laughs> many ways well elizabeth since you brought up holy fools you um is, is one of the questions the the bring the gospel and the movie into conversation with each other raises for me is is jesus when he enters into jerusalem a holy fool and maybe we can look at that question a little bit. T tell me about holy fools as you understand them. Well, I, I don't think Jesus is a holy fool. Um, I, I mean, I think Jesus is pretty savvy in a lot of ways. And I, I don't think um, he's, he's also not as willing to serve as Lazaro is, I think. Um, he's not as agreeable. Uh, I, I think that for me, the gospel has more to do with integrating opposites. So I think Jesus has that ability to bring together all of these opposing forces, the high and the low he embodies in one and he has since his birth, right, uh, in a manger. Um, and in this movie, uh, I think that's what this movie is all about. It, it begins, well, you know, I mentioned the moon, so I'll just say a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, it begins with half of the moon illuminated on the left side of the screen uh, of the of the um, film screen, and um, this moon changes throughout, right? Uh, so we have it sort of going through the phases. But they're, they're actually going in reverse. <laughs> it sort of starts at the end of the cycle and works it way, its way backwards. But many times we have a half of a moon illuminated. And of course, you know, we have Tancredi. And I, I like that, Jed, that you brought up um, the, you know, the question of, you know, who is Tancredi and is he able to bring about change? Because I think he is an important character. Um, 
I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself by suggesting that Tancredi is a kind of a bridge character between the old and the new. Um, of course, he, you know, he mentions, let's be knights errant, right? And after he, he befriends, uh, after he befriends Lazarus, he's like, we can be knights. And it feels very boyish, right? It feels very playful. And it also feels very imaginative. And ultimately, we, you know, he even says to, Tang, to Lazarus at one point, we're going to sign this ransom note in blood, <laughs> you know, and um, he's, he's just that romantic. Well, you know, after a while, you can, you can see Tancredi is fighting his mother. He's from the very get-go. He's like, I want out of this car. I want to go away. I don't. So, you know, there's resistance to everything Alphonse, Alphonsina is advocating. She, he even calls her out on her exploitation of the, of the laborers, right? And so we do see Tancredi challenging um, these old ways, but ultimately it seems like he's too romantic to actually make good on these challenges, mm. right? Um, at the same time, I agree with Judd that, that um, I'm not sure that Lazaro can't, is in the right place to bring about change either because he, he is too much of a holy fool, right? I think the reason that we keep having these oppositions is that Tancredi and Lazaro are sort of two halves of a whole. That, so that is a great way to, to get into talking about holy fools. So I turned to try and understand them to an article by Jesse Perillo, who's a professor at DePaul University in Chicago and also at a university in Michigan. I can't remember which one. But he wrote an article called The Prophetic Without Power and Disruption Without Direction, The Witness of Holy Fools. So in this article, he compares holy fools to prophets. And, and one thing he says about them is that holy, both of them bring to light that which is hidden in the culture. And they both of them bring questions about the way we have established life, the boundaries we have created, the ways that we can be with each other, and particularly questions of justice and injustice. But he says that prophets are essentially dialectical and they are directed towards a given conclusion. Like they see something wrong and they name it, and then they say, this is what needs to happen to fix it. Whereas holy fools are um, not dialectical at all, and they are not directed towards a given conclusion. They are instead relational. So what they are directed towards or what, what their actions lead to is um, bringing all of those questions that they and prophets both have into the light, but maintaining relationship throughout, like not becoming so directed towards what they think is right or should happen that people are left by the wayside as they go. Um, and there's a great term that he brings up, which I had never heard of before. Let me see if I can find it quick. Um, epidiatic rhetoric, epidiatic rhetoric. Do you know that term, Elizabeth? I can kind of puzzle it out from the Latin roots. Um, I assume, but go ahead. Sorry. Let me, you... I'm having trouble finding my place. Oh, here it is. The pursuit of the holy fool proves to be the heightening of appreciation, of appreciation for something and not coercion. It is a hope that once 
the appreciation of a thing or person exists and behavior will inevitably be altered. So epidiatic or dyadic rhetoric is about um, not setting up two things in opposition with each other, but instead trying to inhabit or live a certain way of life that can serve as an example to others. So that a holy fool would never say, you are wrong and crazy to live the life that you live, you know, because it is unjust and it is cruel. A holy fool would instead say, I see the way you live, and although it will look like foolishness to most of the world, I'm still going to be loyal and love and love you out of the hope that you will begin to follow the example of my love, which I see um, Lazaro doing. And I don't like Tancredi. I mean, you bring up Elizabeth how, you know, uh, he wants to sign something in blood. He then goes to prick his own finger, cannot do it. And so pricks gets Lazaro to cut himself and, and sign with blood because he is that exploitative of everyone around him, right? Like, he's not capable of doing things without exploiting someone, apparently. And yet, Lazaro stays incredibly loyal to him to the end. And I think it's because of that, that epidiatic wish that the example of that loyalty will be more powerful and more effective than anything else. And yet, ironically, the character who I think that example works on is not Tancredi, but is, uh, is uh, Antonia. So there's, there's a scene in the movie where Tancredi has invited all of these former sharecroppers to lunch, and they spend all their money to buy bonbons, to buy sweets to bring to this lunch. They show up at the door, and Tancredi doesn't even answer. His wife answers, has no idea they're coming. Tancredi is obviously too hungover or something in another room, even to come to the door. So they're disappointed, the sharecroppers are. They turn to leave. The wife calls them back and essentially just takes the sweets from them. <laughs> She's like, well, you brought those. I might as well have them, even though I'm not going to give you lunch. And the rest of the sharecroppers are deeply opposed to this. They're like, why, why would we do this? But it's, it's uh, Antonia who says, yes, to, you know, we will give these. Because I think she is the one who can actually see and learn from Lazaro. Yeah, I I think that's really, that's kind of what I had come to is that Lazaro himself would never um, try to change things, right? He's, he, he is the, 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 the guy who surrenders himself absolutely to this moment or to what any, anything anybody wants of him. He could not, he could not spearhead a revolution, right? But what he could do is inspire others and bring love that then shapes others lives and I think he clearly does that when he reappears in Antonia's life and I mean we're sort of to get out of the chronology and maybe we'll work our way back but in the end um the sharecroppers are talking about going back to Inviolata and, and squatting right and I thought I wonder if they could have gotten there had Lazaro not shown uh, up right they also, um, music follows them from a cathedral. I think it's that conversation, right? That, yeah. So they try to go into this cathedral because they hear organ music and a nun shoos them away, like makes them leave. 
as if the music isn't for them, but the music decides it's definitely for them because it leaves the cathedral and follows only them. <laughs> yeah. And in what was like, I, I love that scene on so many levels. It was what the only moment in the movie that I was frustrated with it at all was when like the nun said something like, the music has left. And it was just like a little too on the nose. It was like, hey, we can we can hear it leaving. We're going with it, you know. I, like this movie's been so good about kind of letting you explore and follow with. Um, but I thought, yeah, like what a beautiful scene there that was kind of also, I think the bookend to a scene earlier on where we have uh, Tancredi's mother. Um, help me with her name again, Elizabeth. Alfonsina. Uh, where she earlier had been teaching some of the sharecroppers' children from the scriptures in a way that's very similar to how the scriptures were used uh, by slaveholders here in the United States um, to impress upon a subservience that was uh, mandated by God. Uh, and so you see this being the scriptures being wielded in that way, the church and religion being wielded in that way early in the film. And then later, as their attempt to be shooed out of the church for deigning to take in the beauty that was being offered, <laughs> that beauty just leaves right with them and goes. Um, and and yeah, I thought that was that was quite a scene. Yeah, I mean, there are two powerful institutions that are indicted and that have failed clearly in modernity. And one seems to be the church, mm -hmm. organized religion, and the other seems to be um, the world of finance, right? Banks and uh, um, exploited, you know, just, just labor practices, the whole, that whole infrastructure. Yeah, there's, uh, towards the beginning, um, the, I don't know what you would call him, the manager of the, the land where the sharecroppers work comes to essentially extract from them everything that they've harvested and raised, and a priest comes with them. And then once you learn that this is actually not too far from today that this is set, you realize that this priest obviously must know that sharecropping is illegal, is going there anyway, and you and you, you wonder, like, what is going on with this person, or what is going on with the institution that he uh, represents, that they would be complicit in this? And that, you know, this is a little off topic, but I, I love that scene um, for a lot of reasons. But, um, you know, he, he hands out candy to the kids, Nicola, the um, foreman, maybe. Manager. Yeah. And as he hands out the piece of candy, he thumps the kid in the head. Yes. <laughs> candy thump, candy thump. And I thought, mm, that's. That, that's not a subtle metaphor. That's, you know, everything in this life, you get a little piece of candy and a thump on the right. head. <laughs> and, um, but at the same time, uh, there's something quite um, fun about the scene, right? I mean, you don't get, the kids are laughing, yeah. right? And the kids, the, of course, I, you know, I think we need to, to talk about the, the whole mood of the first half of the movie is, it's really beautiful and it's, it's captured beautifully cinematographically, cin cinematically. <laughs> um, so we see the kids having fun and we also see that there's this just beautiful extended family. They're poor as church mice, right? <laughs> no, 20 people no living in a single house or something like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, they are very poor, but they're even Nicola, who is an exploitative manager, uh, in this previous time period, there's something kind of warm and fun, you know, about him, at least in the scene where he's handing out candy to the kids. Yeah, that um, in that earlier part of the movie, too, there's a scene where Alfonsina is going to come to her property to like the the manor house there in Inviolata, if I'm saying that correctly. And um, so Antonia and Lazaro are getting it ready, and they keep finding these little saints cards. Like, Antonio keeps showing him one under the bed, one on, on uh, the side of a dresser drawer. Um, and this, Jed, is why I'm not sure that it is actually the story of the Wolf of Gubbio that we hear after, well the sharecroppers are leaving the village because I think that um, the director, Alice Rohrwacher, if I'm saying that correctly, Alice Rohrwacher, I think she is skeptical of enough of religion that she doesn't want to just give us a story from a saint. Like she sees religion as being used to oppress these people. At the same time, she's interested enough in religion that she wants to give us this figure of a holy fool, and she wants to give us a story that is in relationship to the Wolf of Gubbio. But um, the story she tells is that there is a wolf terrorizing a village, and a saint comes, is called to take care of the wolf, and the saint just keeps wandering. So it's not St. Francis. He doesn't sit down and talk to the wolf, and he doesn't domesticate the wolf. The wolf does not end up in the village, like in the story of the Wolf of Gubbio, you know, walking into people's room while they're sleeping and laying placidly down. Instead, the saint, as he's wandering, looking on his own spiritual quest, gets so hungry and so broken that he falls down. And then the, the wolf comes and sniffs all around him and realizes that he is a thoroughly good human being and therefore doesn't eat him. That, that's a folktale in the film. Yeah, and I think that, um, and you know, certainly, you know, we're getting that while the wolf is nuzzling <laughs> Lazaro coming back to life there. Um, I was thinking a little bit as well about um, that play on that tale, Carl, when uh, the scene you mentioned, when Antonia leads the sharecroppers to lunch at Tancredi's and goes and spends an exorbitant amount of money on the nicest pastries in town to take and to deliver. Um, and in thinking about some of my own read of this in that like Lazaro was unable to tame the wolf. <laughs> and, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, she goes and feeds the wolf, <laughs> but it doesn't bring like a change. It doesn't bring a transformation about um, in this in this story. So I'm curious about why you say that, because I read that differently. Okay. Um, The the wolf is, um, the wolf smells the good man. Or maybe you're talking, okay, so maybe you're not in the fairy tale anymore, folk tale anymore, you're back in the movie. But, you know, this voiceover is happening while Tancredi is lying, presumably dead, and... Or when Lazaro's lying, presumably. Sorry, 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 Lazaro's lying. And then he gets up 
And then he seems to have some connection with the wolf throughout the rest of the movie. Hmm. So I took that as uh, something had transpired there between the wolf and Lazaro, no? I take it too. And I, I also wonder if there isn't transformation because of what you said before, Elizabeth, that it is at least hinted that this group of sharecroppers are going to go back to Enesquat and Inviolata. And that too seems like a change, like a transformation. Maybe it doesn't transform Tancredi. And is the wolf we get running down the street, is that Lazaro uh, in some transformed heading down back out to Inviolata where now the wolf will protect? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think you know, so. um, they keep they keep calling <laughs> they keep calling uh, Lazaro ghost and you know the old folks after he returns uh, and um, yeah. Nick uh, Antonia keeps saying no 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 stop please but you notice he doesn't eat I mean if you if you go back and look closely when they're eating uh, crisps and then they're eating boiled you know vegetables and herbs from the side of the road he never does eat. And then at one point they hand him toilet paper. Lazaro, you need some toilet paper? He says, nope. You know, so it's almost like whatever he's come back as, it's he's not fully human. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I also now it's suddenly occurring to me that there are actually two canines in this movie. Like Tancredi has a little yeah. dog. Hercules. I can't the, is it? Or Hercules, there you go. Yeah, so there's a tiny little dog named Hercules, and a dog is, you know, it is a domesticated wolf that is kept kind of in a prima or a permanent adolescence by our domestication of it. Um, and yet the movie is not aligning Lazaro, who seems like the the innocent permanent adolescent with this little dog. Lazaro is instead the wolf, you know? So it says if um, Tancredi and our entire society of exploitation is like a little useless dog and Lazaro's freedom through kind of love and holy foolery is <laughs> the wolf. It's a natural wild thing. That has its Yeah, own and I mean, I think I'd go even further and say that that relationship that Lazaro has with the wolf is prelapsarian and that his fall off the cliff signals that, you know, that this is before the fall, right? And then after the fall. And um, yeah, I there's a, a scene that kind of, I think, foreshadows his death uh, at the bottom of the cliff. It's when he's he's standing watch for the watchman and he's falling asleep in the hen house and Peepo comes up and drops shells in his mouth or something as he's sleeping. And <laughs> Antonia says, you could have killed, he could have killed you, you know? And then Lazarus like, it's okay, it's okay. Um, but while that scene is happening, we, we actually have another voiceover and it's about Daniel in the lion's den. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, Daniel, of course, also remains inviolate, mm-hmm. right, unviolated by the lions. So mm-hmm. this, I think, I think we're to read that as um, there's a communication, a communion between humans and animals that Lazaro embodies. Mm-hmm. 
and it's prelapsarian and, and it, it, of course it aligns with the Garden of Eden and, uh, you know, a, a state of peacefulness that prior to the fall. Yeah, and there was, like you said, Elizabeth, too, there's that fasc the fascinating mood of the first half of the film, where even as we're watching people be exploited, as we're watching them kind of scrape by with food and wine and is live very, very simply, um, there is such a beauty about the place. And it is filmed with full color and vibrant color, almost technicolor sometimes, right? With these greens and the blues and even the way they film up to the sky, up off of the mountains so often. And um, there, is, uh, there is a sense that they're not far from somewhere quite beautiful. <laughs> um, if, it, if, it weren't for, if it weren't for how they were being exploited, if it weren't for like that they're actually, they're, they're right there in a deep connection with this place, with this land, um, in caring for it and tending to it. It's something that many of us would like to get back to and return to. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that light bulb, you know, that light bulb yeah. that they share, I think such a powerful symbol. But if you go back and watch the way she sets up the scenes, it's really interesting. That light bulb, again, hangs in the left corner and it's and then at one point it moves to the right and center and right in front of the lovers, the couple who are getting married. And but it, initially it's in this left corner, which is exactly where the half moon was. Mm. Mm. Wow. Yeah. yeah, you saw it. Wow, you saw so much of this. I had to watch it twice like, though. So you know, it's so funny that the first time I was kind of like, what? <laughs> and and I did, I had to, you know, the <laughs> second time, the second viewing is so important, but you know that light bulb represents i would say family and community and those bonds of love and how even though they had nothing right it, they did have that warmth of of family so to switch a little bit um, one of the things we know about Lazaro in that first half is that he stares into the void. There are certain points where people will be like, Lazaro is off staring into the void again, and we just kind of see him standing there, like getting rained on, whatever the case may be, just lost, like he's in a fugue state. Um, and I wonder if Alice uh, Rohrwacher hasn't read Simone Weil. Uh, because the void is a big concept for Simone Weil, who basically presents a void as a place where power reaches its reaches its limit, where wherever we move out of the zone of whatever we can control, that is a void. And it seems to me that part of Lazaro's character is that he has a very deep sense of the limits of his power and his control. That's part of his humility, really. But it's also part of why um, there's, we referenced it earlier, but there's a scene where uh, Alfonsino is talking to her son, uh, Tancredi, and points out Lazaro and says, um, look, even these people who I'm exploiting, I found somebody to exploit. Like the way of the world is that we all exploit each other except Lazaro doesn't. And the reason I think he doesn't is because he stares into the void. Like he knows that there is a limit to power and control, right? There's not much point 
of exploiting other people once you know that. But those who are incapable of staring into the void mm-hmm. think they can control everything. They think everything fits within their sphere of power and control. So part of what makes him such a power, such a holy fool is that, I mean, for Simone Weil, the ultimate moment of staring into the void is the cross. You know, because it is a moment where the sphere of power and control has become so constricted, it's non-existent, essentially. Um, so I think for I think for Lazaro, we need to think of him as, in a way, on the cross. And this is now I'm getting, now I'm getting preachy, but this is why I this is why I, I kind of thought the juxtaposition of the of the reading from. Um, Palm Sunday with this movie has made me understand Palm Sunday in a completely different way. Because I think when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's not being a prophet. Um, he is not like going directly to the temple and pointing out everything that's wrong and screaming and tearing his hair. He's instead putting on a kind of holy foolery, you know, <laughs> which shows the, which is meant directly to show the limits of the power and control of the Roman Empire. <laughs> And therefore, it is about the void. Like, he is embracing the void even as he goes into the city where he will die in that ultimate void on the cross. So, I I mean, I'm fully willing to accept uh, Lazaro as a Christ figure, not only because he gets reborn, but just because of that, that capacity to be in the void. Yeah, and that way, you were mentioning this earlier, but the way as a, a holy fool showing up and disrupting he he might not have had an imagination for another world, but he inspires an imagination for another world and those around him. Um, and what and what a gift there, right? Yes. Uh, that that he could do that, and even that as they attempt, as the the family attempts to enter in that church, this place where the beauty of it could, and the beauty of the music could be that thing that inspires imagination and lifts you above and beyond there in that place to to see another world, they've got to go outside of it <laughs> um, and be interrupted by someone outside of that system in that place that, that really was embodying the holy. And, and perhaps too that, um, I, I mean, as I said, this movie is, it has, it, it really visits these opposites, um, high, low, past, present, hmm. myth, reality, um, Moon wolf, of course, the that's where the moon comes in. Is that you know the moon and the wolf are linked, um, and you know this world and spirit world. And I mean, I think it's that's that's it. It's so difficult to figure out how to live out Jesus's teachings in the world, and um, and how to put these two very different worlds together. It could not be what this film is teaching us because you know the director very deliberately pairs folk fable myth Mm -hmm. with naturalism Mm -hmm. and perhaps perhaps Lazaro is the only character who seems to have one foot in each world yeah and maybe that's also where the void comes in (laughs) one you know one one foot in the spiritual realm in the inner world but one very much in the world of the body and working and and connecting with people That's great. There's um, a moment where 
they're in the city and he has found his own sharecropper family and he begins to start picking like plants edible plants that are growing all around um this weird almost like little abandoned water tower or water tank that they live in and uh antonio's husband who is not from the sharecropping community is amazed he's amazed that there's all this food around them that they could eat and even sell and all the sharecroppers are not amazed they've noted it's there all along but for them picking it is a return to their exploitation and so they won't do it but for lazaro he can he can pick it because maybe because he's somehow always been freed of the exploitation anyway <laughs> you know like he's not he's not harmed by the past or harmed by like the unveiling they what is it called the great swindle is what the newspaper calls it when it's realized that these people have been kept in bondage when they you know after sharecropping was illegal and Lazaro even uses the term the great swindle to describe Tancredi's situation of of everything being in hock to a bank. Um, so for Lazaro, like, there is a swindle. That is real. Mm-hmm. So there's foot in one world. And yet the swindle applies equally to those who would exploit and those who are exploited. It applies to everyone. And I don't know if that's a foot in the folkloric rule world or not, but it is the kind of thing that, like, folk stories help one to realize in a way that maybe, you know, law and uh, analysis mm-hmm. of social conditions. Don't. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I don't know how we're doing on time. I just kind of wondered if you'd like, if we'd like to go into the world of Rip Van Winkle, since we're talking about folk tales. I'm. I'm I'm good for another yeah, ten minutes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, some amazing similarities. Of course, not only does Rip uh, wander up into a high point in the in these kind of misty mountains of the Catskills, skills, which are described as mysterious and magical, but he falls asleep for a long time, maybe a hundred years, and he comes not not that long, and he comes back, and of course, everybody else has changed. Um, Rip has a faithful companion dog named Wolf. yeah yeah and um you know rip is kind and childlike and um one of the interesting things that i discovered i just did a quick reread of of rip on, on you can find it online um i mean not only the the weather and it's something we didn't talk about with this the sound of wind whistling throughout the movie what's that all about i mean um clearly it has meaning right um does anybody either of you want to say anything about that before i say a little bit more about rip yeah and i think for me one of the things i thought it initially was is there something about like the winds of change right or there's this Mm -hmm. but ultimately i think the movie says uh progress is illusory (laughs) that actually like the magic trick isn't Lazaro coming back, but that this exploitation is able to continue and we're find new ways. And so I'd be, I'd be very interested in knowing like where, yeah, what's working with that wind, what could be happening there? Yeah. And you know, this is really exploratory for me, but 
I think Rip can help us. I mean, what, what he says is that the, the mountains themselves are, uh, there's kind of a spirit of place here and that um, the mountains, all, all the old folk wives look at the mountains as barometers for what's going on in their lives. And, um, you know, this is a, this is, you know, it appears in, in all kinds of stories, but it seems to suggest spirit. Mm. And uh, the ways in which spirit moves people. Uh, of course, a couple of times we have the old guys holding out their arms and going, Ooh, you know, and they, they seem to be affecting Lazaro or Tancredi, seem to be kind of moving him in different ways. Um, so this suggests a sort of supernatural power. The invisible world that works on the visible world, and again, you know, I think that that yin and yang, these these uh, halves uh, that are kind of past, present, you know, that are she revisits throughout the Catskills, of course, um, in New York, and uh, that whole area that Washington Irving writes about over and over again is. Um, is the Hudson River Valley, named for, of course, Henry Hudson, who who discovered the Hudson discovered the Hudson River. Um, he was in a ship. The name of his ship was the Half Moon. Mm. Yeah, that was that was the name of his ship. You know, which it kind of makes you wonder: is she hinting at exploitation of colonization here? You know, at, she was living in New York when she yeah. wrote this movie. That's interesting. Years ago, so I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. So I think that the moon could mean so many things. But what what I've come to think of it at, over the couple of days I've been thinking about this is that the moon is both this this profound symbol of change going moving through its phases, and also a constant in that it happens again and again and again. And of course, the moon and the wolf are are linked, and in a you know Lazaro and Tancredi are linked in some kind of mysterious way. Of course, Tancredi's last name is De Luna. How is that? So I mean, she's making so many clear literary allusions here, not only to Rip Van Winkle, but but also to um, Don Quixote, um, we have, you know, the, the, the two errant knights, the knights errant, you know, and, and also we have the Sancho Panza character, very simple, uh, you know, hanging around with Don Quixote, who is a kind of a kind of a lord, but a lord who's interested in justice, but ultimately can't, can't really do much with his dream. Well, this has been amazing. My mind is blown. I watched the movie on a Saturday with my wife. I said afterwards, I don't think I understood anything about that movie. I have no idea how I'm going to talk about it in the podcast. Then I read a lot, so I'd have something smart to say. And then you two just blew my mind entirely. I now think this might be one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. So I did the same. It's been a wild us. ride. I started reading and then and then watched it again. And it it's such a rich movie. I'm I'm amazed at how much how rich it is and you know how how much I I just I think I want to go watch it again. <laughs> I know. I know. 
Well, Judd, any final thoughts before uh, before we close? I'm just so excited that you both love this movie so much. It is one that I uh, that I have just been such a huge fan of since seeing. I uh, if I had been better prepared today, obviously our viewers can't see us, but we're on Zoom together. I would have wore my Alice Rohrwalker T-shirt that I bought what? because I became oh. such a fan of this movie. It has the, oh. it has the big green tobacco leaves. It's really quite wonderful. Um, <laughs> And uh, and I I would say that uh, there are two notes that I would want to make about performances. Um, I think Alba Rohrwacher as Antonia is really spectacular. Carl, you mentioned uh, in the way that Antonia does seem to be uh, inspired and moved and undergoing a transformation by Lazaro's presence. Um, and that uh, there's really some incredible work happening here. And if you liked her in this movie, to go back and watch her in a very small supporting role, but in a movie, another Italian movie from uh, Luca Guadagnino called I Am Love, that stars Tilda Swinton, um, which is really a very spectacular film. Um, that one really about exploring desire and loss and just a, a wonderful movie. So I would, I would highlight that um, there. And then as well as just, the the way that uh, Tancredi, the young Tancredi, gives such a physical performance, um, and his long loafing body—it's very slim and very skinny. The way he's sprawled out at times, the way like there is such a physicality that's brought to that role that sometimes the spoiled brat <laughs> or the you know the 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 rich child with arrested development just communicates everything solely uh, with, you know, a bad attitude, a little bit of a high-pitched whine. And mm -hmm. I think the physicality of the performance lets you in on some so much of who he is and also uh, adds a depth to it that I thought was really quite good on a character that often takes me out of movies. So this movie was one that was, I think, really well acted and performed as well. Um, and obviously the director was pulling a lot out of that. Fantastic. Well, let me, let me turn to our final question. So if you find that you've been living in, a, you know, isolation after a, after a flood and a landfall and you haven't really been in the normal world and you are ready to set out and cross that river into a different kind of wilderness, the wilderness of modern, modernity and coldness and uncaring, would you take this movie with you? Shall I go first? Sure. Um, I I would. I'm 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 kind of fascinated with this movie now, as I indicated. Um, but I, I, you know, I think I watched it for the first time about a week ago, and I have actually found myself sort of thinking about uh, Lazaro from just at random moments in my day, sort of when I'm frustrated, and actually thinking. What would Lazaro do in this? <laughs> Lazaro would surrender entirely. And, you know, he has this sort of blankness, right? It's just utter surrender to whatever comes into his, his life in that moment, which is so beautiful. And yet he's not without emotion, as we see at the end when he, he cries after the, you know, after um, Tom Crady kind of kicks him out. But, you know, it, he's, he has such a wonderful, peaceful presence about him that I would love to to take him with me into the wilderness. 
How about you, Jed? Yeah, I think that you know, I've said a lot about it. the beauty of the film um, is really something, and not just the first half, which you know is a beautiful setting and place, but then the second half and just the beauty of the relationships that are explored, the hopes that people still carry with them, uh, and the way that uh, you know we're all still longing for community and connection, and it's, it's really quite a film. So uh, yeah, I would bring it with me. I think it has as we've mentioned here, so much to explore. You would be wearing your Alice Warraher. Yes. <laughs> you carry the DVD into the wilderness. Yeah, I would, I would too, because I think I'd need to watch it many, many more times uh, to even begin to unpack a quarter of the symbolism and the meaning. So I would definitely take it with me. Well, thank you dear listeners, for listening to this entire series of films in the wilderness. This is the last one, which is quite sad, but it's been a really powerful, wonderful journey during this Lent 2021. Our theme music is provided by the great Brianna Kelly, and we are very grateful for the support of the Diocese of Southern Ohio, and especially for the work and support of Emma Steinmetz, Christopher Richardson, and Jason Odin. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you, Elizabeth. That was excellent. Uh, my pleasure.